Electronic priests are telling my second life not to have cyber sex. It's true, and it's coming up on this week's Reasonable Doubt. Yes, welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. News, views, and counter-apologetics for those who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy Vian, and thanks for listening in. Here's David Fletcher. What's happening, everybody? And Luke Galen. Hi. So, our first news item. On August 12th, 100,000 Muslims gathered in a stadium in Jakarta, Indonesia for a conference. And what was this conference for? In the BBC's words to show their support for a single unified Islamic state. So here's from the BBC report. This conference wants to establish an Islamic state across the Middle East, something known as a caliphate. The organization regards the caliphate as the ideal form of government, which emerged from Islam 1,400 years ago because it is government according to the laws of God, as set out in the Quran, rather than by the laws designed by man. The organization believes that the system practiced by the Prophet Muhammad during the first years of Islam is applicable to all of the other Muslim lands. The organization, which is called Hitzbah Yut Tahrir, if I... Very well pronounced. I think I I added an odd. I think it's Hitzbah Yut Tahrir. They regard Islam as an entire system for life, This is from the BBC article still. In other words, there should be no separation between religion and politics. It's about time someone in the Islamic world took a stance (laughs) like that. So they packed this stadium, and uh, and the way the the article explains it is it's sort of uh, like a promise keeper's thing, only a lot more scarier, if you can imagine it. I, I. they uh, they start off with a soccer game. They, oh, that's they scarier had already. Stadium. Okay, touche. <laughs> and they had a, a religious youth group put on a rock concert of some sort for them. Children singing. And the whole scary. thing they keep on talking about, it's, it's middle class people. Um, they have this one 24-year-old gentleman quoted here. I'm not making this up. This is a quote. In my opinion... If you support there being Sharia law in Indonesia, you've got to be here. So uh, an enthusiastic crowd, all there for the purpose of setting up an Islamic theocracy across a wide region of the world. So a couple interesting things to, to point out about this article. It says clearly in the article, it says they admit to be against democracy because it runs against their goals of establishing an Islamic state. Some of their members do say they support some form of pseudo-democracy, so elections, but you're choosing amongst religious parties. Most of the people there were educated, uh, middle-class citizens. Also, they have a strong following in the UK, of all places. Most Most of their British membership is recruited from universities. They're not violent. They don't advocate violence. The article says, you know, they don't tell who, but they say experts have looked at the organization and agree that it is not a violent organization, nor is it a front for any sort of terrorist group. 
Mm-hmm. Here's one of their members accounts for the methods that they use. The methods used in Hitzba Utarir is a change in thought patterns. We call it thought revolution. When someone is given Islamic teaching, given the brilliant thinking of Islam, then they'll naturally undergo a thought revolution and will see what is good and what is bad. Here's the thing to me. I personally find this story much more scary than Islamic terrorists uh, because I think these people actually have a chance at succeeding. The characterization that's being made of of atheists like Sam Harris and other people who are criticizing Islam mm-hmm. or conservative Christians is that we're you know representing all all uh, Muslims as terrorists, all Muslims as being radical. That's obviously not true, and I'm sure it's not even true of this group. I, there's probably a lot of people in the stadium that abhor violence as much as we do, and I don't think they deserve the label as terrorists. But to me, terrorism isn't the only issue. They still want to impose their beliefs on society. They still want to write them into law. They want to establish a theocracy. And so for me, if they're not violent and they're, not, you know, and they're well-intentioned, that really doesn't mean much to me. They're packing, they have 100,000 people in a stadium. That's pretty impressive. It, it's, it might not be enough to sway Indonesia's government, but it's right. certainly the beginning of a, of a movement. And if it's picking up speed even in Western universities, mm-hmm. I think it's something that we should pay attention to. Well, it's, it's I mean, there is, it, certainly they're nonviolent and A plus for them. Sam Harris talks about this a lot, though, by making it permissible to be a religious moderate, right. you're allowing for religious extremists. And well, yeah. you're right. I mean, Let's these say people they have succeed. a better chance of succeeding. Let's say they succeed f- through nonviolent means mm-hmm. and create Sharia law in Indonesia. You know, okay, well-intentioned people could pave the way. But once you do impose that yep. religious law on society, what's going to stop the extremists from taking over at that point? But it's almost like we have a game of like good cop, bad cop going on in the in yeah. the Muslim world. There's the terrorists. They're scary. They're frightening us because they're killing people who oppose mm-hmm. what they believe. You know, obviously we have the moderate, the the more liberal wing of of. Islam, right? But, these but don't we sound also like have the liberals. more conservative yeah. wing that clearly is not pro-violence, not pro-terrorists, but they still want to implement the same belief structure, well, the same worldview. And doesn't Sharia law call for honor killings and the stoning of homosexuals and and all of that? I mean, it, maybe they're not using yeah, I'm not terrorism sure to get their goals, yeah. but to say it's a non-violent. Uh, Movement, right. uh, honor killings are pretty damn violent. Right. That would be something interesting to look up is where Sharia law is implemented. Right. Um, to what degree do those things happen? You know, you certainly hear about it. Yeah. Now, is, it, is it widespread? Is it the, the rule or the exception? I, I don't know. There does seem to be a tradition also in those in the in the caliphate type talk of protection of minority rights. You know, it, it, everybody talks up democracy and says, "Well, if everybody votes on something, then that's what it should be." But the, you, we tend to forget that that tends to only work in countries where there's democracy balanced by protection of minority rights. Right, right. Whereas under Sharia law, what the people of the book. If you're a Christian or a Jew, ideally, you should be preserved some of your political rights. But I'm not. 
I'm, I'm not certain that extends to Hindus or Buddhists or anybody else. But they e- even, even wanted, then, it's not full equal rights. Right, but they want to get rid of democracy. I mean, right. it's and, and, yeah, and they say vote as for much. your own dictator. Uh, that's not really democracy. Right. right. So, you know, Hitler democracy. was elected democratically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then as soon as he got in office, then right. yeah. with democracy. So right. So another thing to be uh, discouraged about, terrified in, in of those, in those regions, as if I didn't have enough night sweats. Well, at least we can always escape to the internet, right? Oh, if only we could. Yeah, the the latest Sim game, Sim Salvation, this website, Second Life, which I, I, I wanted to sign up for this and, and check it out, see how, how um, quickly I could get proselytized to. But frankly, I, I was busy. Well, what is Second Life? Because Second I, I don't Life really know much is about this, it. It's an online community where you create basically a sim character to represent yourself. And you walk around and you meet people. And now you can go to church and you can help proselytize to people through this online simulation. It's basically chatting, but it's much more advanced because you have this character who, who walks around through this world Digital and exists. persona. Yeah. Avatar. An, and, avatar. an avatar, but apparently that's that's the way the uh, <laughs> proselytizing sense. I don't know. Um, the Inquisition has not been quite so big with the Catholic Church. They've found a new outlet for it, and, and they're doing it online. Unfortunately, and this is surprising because it's the internet. People are using it to to have sex. <laughs> which Who thought that a new technology would ever be mean, like the there's virtual the characters in the virtual. Which, hey, I, you know. <laughs> someone found a new use for the internet. That's that's fantastic. The big question is, is there cyberspace for God? As it turns out, yeah. But I don't know if if your avatar is saved from damnation, if you are to. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Let's, would your avatar then yeah, be saved, a, but then you are it, separate? Can, you know, by proxy, can you be saved? Or, or conversely, is your avatar damned if he has cyber sex, but you're still okay if you go to church? Um, I don't know. These are these are new questions for the new millennium. I guess we should mention that this is actually not just a phenomena like, uh, you know, Christians just started evangelizing these Second Life characters. Right. This was actually urged by, by a Catholic priest, Father Spadero. Spadero, yep. He says here, it's not possible to turn a blind eye to this phenomena or offhandedly pass judgment glorifying or condemning it. Instead, it must be understood, and the best way to understand it is to enter it and to live inside it and to recognize its potentials and dangers. Be of the world and a part of it, I think is what he's saying. Yeah, so now they have churches, and now you and can go in. And and, and and everything. Yeah. Deep down, the digital world can be considered in its way a mission territory, Father Spadero says. Second life is somewhere where the opportunity to meet people and grow should not be missed. Therefore, any initiative that can inspire the residents in a positive way should be considered opportune. They talk about Spadero. He has a reputation for countercultural innovations in the spirit of Christian justice. this is amazing to me as a fan. He has lauded the singer Tom Waits as a role model for Catholics Tom because Waits? he represents the marginalized and misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. He also brought Oscar Wilde back into the church, which uh, seems a little too late. But um, 
So this guy, he's... How did he bring Oscar? Uh, is this like a Mormon baptizing for the dead? He, I, I, I don't know. It says he paved the way for the rehabilitation of Oscar Wilde by the church when on the centenary centenary of the homosexual writer's death, because he was gay, in case you didn't notice that, um, he praised the understanding of God's love that had followed the writer's imprisonment. So after he was thrown in jail for being gay... Okay, um, then when he saw God's love. Then he okay. saw God's love and continued to be gay, but uh, felt worse about it. I think this is even worse than, than Jehovah's Witnesses, because sure, they come pounding on your door, but I'm not cruising for sex at the time, you know? <laughs> they don't follow you uh, into, yeah. into the internet. And all night. It's... Well, I think we should start a, um, an internet uh, atheist group, a virtual atheist group to provide balance. Don't you think? You know, I I will sign up I'm for sure this as long as it doesn't get. cost anything. I'm signing up for Second Life, and I will report back on, on later podcasts about how many converts I've won over. Okay. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter apologetics. We have counter-apologetics on today's podcast. We're going to be talking about an editorial written by Michael Gerson in the Washington Post. The article, the editorial that is, is called What Atheists Can't Answer. It's a very typical response to atheists saying that we don't have morality. So let me read for you some choice bits from this particular article. Starts off, British author G.K. Chesterton argued that every act of blasphemy is a kind of tribute to God because it is based on belief. If anyone doubts this, he wrote, let him sit down seriously and try to think blasphemous thoughts about Thor. Thor is such a douchebag. <laughs> Thinks he's so cool. With right right off the bat, right off the bat, this is this this editorial is just annoying the hell out of me mm-hmm. because, yes, nice little witty statement from G.K. Chesterton, but it completely ignores the fact that Thor doesn't have a pretty big following. And I'm sure if my neighbors and co-workers and elected politicians did believe in Thor, I can guarantee you that I'd be blaspheming Thor all the time. But he goes on to talk... Uh, Uh, If atheists are right, what would be the effect on human morality? If God were dethroned as the arbiter of moral truth, it would not, of course, mean that everyone joins the crypts or reports to the Playboy Mansion. What is wrong with the Playboy Mansion, can I just say? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm glad he gives us that at least. On evidence found in every culture, human beings can be good without God. So right, right there, I think that should settle this. Uh, but he continues he keeps on. talking. He even admits there is something innate about morality that is distinct from theological conviction. This instinct may result from evolutionary biology, early childhood socialization, but human nature is somehow construed for sympathy and cooperative purpose. Ah, but there's a problem, Gerson says. Dun, dun, dun. Human nature in other circumstances is clearly constructed for cruel exploitation, uncontrollable rage, and icy selfishness. There's that selfish gene again. 
It's always getting us so into So how trouble. do we choose between good and bad instincts? Theism for several millennia has given us one answer. We should cultivate the better angels of our nature because the God we love and respect requires it. Does Thor require that? Atheists can be good people. They just have no objective way to judge the conduct of those who are not. So, There's several where do we begin with that, that piece? Of <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. Well, well, go ahead. I that he later in the article he tries to make an argument for that somehow our divine impulse is instilled in humans, which is directly contra- uh, He says that we have negative tendencies that are part of our human nature. Then he also later argues that there's positive tendencies. So it's almost reminds me of my mother that you know when I get a PhD, then she says that I'm her child and it must have been the upbringing. <laughs> but when I get thrown in jail, then she says it was my bad, evil deeds. So you can't take credit for the good things and then disown the bad ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, whence cometh evil then? If we have an evil human nature, uh, traditionally Christians say that it's because of our you know our own doing. We we. It comes from our own thing. But the good aspects, those are from above. Well, you can't have it both ways. He makes these concessions, you know, Mm -hmm. reasonable ones, and I'm glad he said it. But that there is something innate about morality that is distinct from theological conviction. Right there there he's saying, look, there's a biological basis where morality can come from that has nothing to do with theological beliefs. So right there, he's laying the foundation for, for ethics. So the big question is, okay, so we have this ability. We can either choose good or we can choose bad. And the atheists don't have a reason for why to choose good over bad. But the theists do because we want to love and honor God. Uh, but that's... That's why theists never do anything bad. The ignorance of that is just unbelievable. I mean, has the man cracked open a textbook? And this goes this goes for everybody who makes this argument. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of otherwise intelligent people who do. But it just completely shows the myopia that comes from the faithful. Because right. if you have cracked open a textbook on ethics and ethical theories – of any of the philosophers from the Enlightenment on, I mean, what do you what do you want to choose? Which which one should we talk about? Virtue ethics, utilitarian ethics, Situation social ethics. social contracts, mm-hmm. uh, all of these systems that we have. The the bulk of the real intellectual thought on moral issues, none of them posits a god to start from. None of them requires a theological mm-hmm. foundation to go from. If you're wondering where atheists find a basis for morality, why not just study moral theories? I mean, take your pick. There's any number of foundations that you can make for your for your moral convictions. I've also found frequently uh, the, the religious people refer to the text as the basis for morality when in actuality the texts are ambiguous and make a lot of different principles and they... It's ironic that they, they suppose that that is a standard, a gold standard of morality set in stone for all eternity when they simply, those change over the years. We don't have slaves anymore. We don't have patriarch. Well, it's okay to eat shellfish. Patriarch. Yes, shellfish, all those. Things. So if one is positing that the atheists have flexible standards for morality and it's you know relativism, which is a right. bad word, isn't the interpretation of the text relativistic as well? What evidence is there that God is in a set moral text that's always been the same? 
He says, uh, some argue that a careful determination of our long-term interests or a fear of bad consequences will constrain our selfishness. But this is particularly absurd. Some people are very good at self-centered exploitation of others. Many will get away with it their whole lives. How does that not apply to Christianity equally? Okay. Not all atheists are going to be compelled by some of these rationales for being moral, like looking at the consequences or the long-term interests or something like that. Is it not equally true that not all Christians are going to be compelled by a wrathful God, uh, you know, who will just forgive their sins anyways in, in some sects of Christianity? Right. But, but I have to say he's right about one thing, and, and presumably he didn't even write the title for the article, but what atheists can't answer. Atheists can't answer anything. Atheist is not a set of principles and ethics. Atheism is just the lack of belief in a god. That's it. Yeah. Atheists aren't looking for... That's why we need humanism and, right. and other uh, moral studies and philosophy to answer things. Atheism, but he's right. trying to frame atheism as a set of beliefs, and that completely, always drives me nuts. Completely ignoring that there's any number of positive worldviews that integrate an yeah. atheist component. And we're not just talking about naturalism either. Right. I mean, Buddhism. Buddhism, some forms of Buddhism are atheist, mm-hmm. atheistic. I mean, imagine if you substituted that word, what Buddhists can't answer. Yeah. Or substitute what uh, what utilitarians can't answer. Or secularists. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Substitute any what humanists. And it also presupposes then that the religious person could answer these questions. I, uh, right. And you see this a lot in scientific arguments as well. Well, atheists don't know what happens before the Big Bang, and that's true. Scientists, or I guess scientists, would concede that they can't. It's implied there that their religious uh, that the religious answer then fills that gap. But that's, you know, that's a big presupposition. They might say that they do. That is, you might say, well, as a religion, religious theist, I then have the answers to these things. They purport to. But that doesn't mean that. I think it was Richard Dawkins that's in his book, you know, what does it mean to, to proclaim that you're an expert in a non-existent discipline? Uh, yeah. well, you know, I'm, a, I'm the world's foremost unicorn classifier. What well, atheists can't <laughs> explain why unicorns right. are classified the way that I classify them. Sorry, Michael Gerson, uh, another valiant attempt, but atheists do have morality. We have just as much of a foundation to base our moral beliefs as you do. Uh, perhaps the problem is you're just not acquainted with that. Get to know an atheist. Start reading about ethics in the 20th century. Or take a vacation in Scandinavia or northern Europe and <laughs> you can see them pillaging in the streets and <laughs> yeah, the, the level yeah. of violence. It, in Iceland. In those hedonistic, uh, yeah. terrible countries that ha- happen to have the lowest infant mortality rates right. and uh, universal health care. and well, now that we've quashed his argument, why don't we go out and eat some babies? Because uh, I'm due. Moving on now, Lauren Becker with us today on the program. Lauren Becker is a field organizer for the Center for Inquiry. 
You probably know her from her commentaries on Point of Inquiry, the radio show and podcast of CFI. She is an experienced environmental activist and an advocate for science literacy and education. So thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Hi. For some of our listeners who may not actually know what Center for Inquiry is all about, I was wondering if you could give us a brief explanation of the organization and what their goals are. Center for Inquiry is sort of an umbrella group that encompasses several different organizations. One of them is the Council for Secular Humanism, and another one is formerly known as PSYCOP, which was the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. They recently changed their name to CSI, Committee for Skeptical Investigation. And those two groups have a long history, and CFI was put in place to be sort of an an outreach component of that. So those two groups had a lot of publishing and a lot of smaller groups associated with them, skeptical groups or secular humanist groups. We realized that those two things would do well together, and so we created the Center for Inquiry to house those two things and to become uh, sort of a source for community groups and campus groups and centers around the country as an outreach of, of those ideas, specifically put in place to promote science and reason and freedom of inquiry. So I've heard you say before that you're fairly new to the free-thinking movement, to the skeptical movement in general, that only four years ago you didn't even know what secular humanism was. What brought you to CFI? What brought you to want to join that organization and be a part of it? Well, um, I was a park ranger in Crater Lake, Oregon, in the lead-up to the 2000 election. And those of us that were aware of environmental sciences and ecology and those of us who cared about natural resources were very concerned about the 2000 election because we understood what was at stake. We knew what the record was for Al Gore and we knew what George Bush's environmental record was in Texas. And it, if George Bush were to win, we knew we were in trouble, um, not only from an environmental standpoint, but from a just general philosophy of government standpoint. We knew George Bush was very much in favor of privatizing a lot of aspects of what the government did. And so that got me really paying attention to politics more than ever before. And when that election went the way it did, became very concerned that a good number of things that I truly cared about, not only environmental things, but uh, church-state separation issues. I grew up in Virginia, so I was raised reading Jefferson and Madison and Monroe. And so I was just very concerned. And after several years, it just got to the point where I could not sit on the sideline and participate in trying to protect these things that I thought were so important, not just to me, but to a healthy, functioning democracy. And so I did a little bit of digging. I thought maybe I need to go back to school um, and, and learn a little bit more before I can really help this movement. And in the course of doing that, I found CFI because of their master's program that they have, which is a science and the public degree through the University at Buffalo um, in New York. And so that got me interested. And then the more I learned about CFI, the more I thought, hey, you know, I, I would like to go work for them because they're doing good things and they have the same idea that I did. It wasn't just a matter of teaching people about global warming or these environmental issues, there was an ideological problem. Ideology was the problem. And to me, CFI is the antidote to ideology because it's based in reason and rationale. There is no one set answer based on a person's ideology. And I thought that's that's really what I needed to work towards to try to help this situation. So I uh, applied and went to work for them. It's great to hear how you came to Center for Inquiry from an appreciation of science and from appreciation of science and reason's roles in society. A lot of times my experience with free-thinking groups and with skeptical groups, because, of course, skepticism towards religious 
claims and the metaphysical claims of New Agers and that sort of thing is an important part of what CFI does, addressing those Absolutely. those issues skeptically. I think there's a sort of a stereotype that people have an axe to grind against religion. And so it's the only reason why somebody would join an organization like that. And from what I hear from you is a very positive aspect, that, that you were concerned about actively promoting positive values such as science and reason. That's, that's really encouraging to me. That being said, this is sort of a show where we do, <laughs> where we do criticize the religious como- component, but we always try to make clear that there's a positive component to that too. Well, there definitely is a connection between where I am and sort of criticizing religion in the sense that I just think that religious ways of knowing are not good enough. They might have been good enough 2,000 years ago, but they're not good enough now. We have a much better way of doing it. Science is better. Reason is better. But at the same time, I have a lot of very wonderful people in my life that have been religious. And I can't um, justifiably, without uh, being hypocritical, slew the entire lot of religion without also slaying these people slew the religion. I can't, can't slay the entire lot of religion without also defaming these people that I love who have loved right. me and been very good to me. So I, I've always found that it's better to be much more specific. And that's a scientific right. thing. You have to, you can't just generalize. You have to be very specific when you're making claims. And, and so along those lines, there are aspects of religious theology that some people hold that are extremely right. dangerous to, to many things. But again, addressing the ideas and not necessarily right. the people. There's plenty of intelligent... Yeah people with a lot of integrity right. who are religious. It's the epistemology, the way of knowing right. sometimes. Ad hominem gets us nowhere. <laughs> right, exactly. So I don't want to focus on this too much longer, but what what components of a religious ideology did you find were a problem in the national parks of all places, <laughs> in environmentalism? and Right. Uh, well, one of my first park experiences was in uh, Fall Creek Falls, which is a state park in Tennessee, which is along the Columbia Plateau related to the Appalachian Mountain Chain, which is a 300-million-year-old mountain chain. And the great thing about the park was this waterfall, 256 feet high, and so you'd hike down to the bottom through all these wonderful layers of rock. And obviously talking about the geology of the place, and you can't do that without mentioning ages. And of course, Tennessee is somewhat of the buckle of the Bible Belt, and I would have parents covering their children's ears because of the blasphemy coming from the park ranger. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And it took a little research on my part. You know, I had to go back and say, what was the problem with these people on my hike? What's that all about? So there's that sort of fundamental view that you run into with creationists, young earth especially, who don't want to hear these old dates of the earth. And so that was odd. I had read that those sorts of people existed, but I'd never met any before. And then that sort of opened up. And at every other park experience I had, there were always some people who challenged the scientific information based on their understanding of the world because of their religious faith. So that was always fascinating. It's relatively harmless, though, on an individual basis. But the problem is that the numbers show that about 30 million people in the country have these young earth views. And I just feel that, as we've said, that's, that's a, religion is a bad source of knowledge about the modern world and about the, the earth and what, we, what we're confronted with. And we are confronted with the earth and these very wor- real world environmental problems and scientific problems. And to be eschewing science like that is just on its way to trouble. Plus, you also get the more extreme religious ideologies, which 
say, it doesn't matter how many trees we cut down or how much we destroy the planet because Jesus is coming back soon and we'll all be, you know, raptured up to heaven and so we don't need to worry about it. It gets even more extreme than that, where some people believe that we have the power to actively uh, bring about the Armageddon. We can bring about Jesus' return by destroying the earth ourselves, since that's <laughs> what's called for. So clearly from an environmental standpoint and just anybody who's concerned about living on the planet for the next 40 years, these ideologies are quite dangerous. It's not just somebody on a hike in Tennessee not believing that that rock's 300 million years old and really ugly from there. <laughs> it's, not getting the, it's not getting the particular facts right so much as understanding the method and understanding... I mean, I think it's probably safe to assume uh, that if people do not understand science enough to know why the Earth isn't 6,000 years old, that they're not going to have a firm enough grasp of the issues to be able to deal with other important scientific issues in our national parks. And, right. and anywhere else, yeah. Right. It, it, that's exactly By denying that that rock is 300 million years old, you're denying the scientific process that tells us that that rock right. is that old, which causes all sorts of problems in other ways. Now, working with Center for Inquiry, one of the areas that I know you've been focusing on is helping campus groups. My, my question for you is, why is it important to bring CFI's agenda, CFI's mission to promote reason and science to campuses? Why is it so important to provide a skeptical view towards religious and other types of claims that are not based on science to the universities? Because my understanding of it is if there's one place in society where these types of inquiries are going on, where skepticism is promoted and where people hear a view outside of what they may have been taught in their Sunday school or led by their parents to believe, it's the universities. Aren't the universities perhaps the place that least need an active skeptical group, an active group that's promoting science and reason? You would hope so. But we're starting to see that that's not the case. The general perception of the university is that it is a place where students are going to go to grow outside of their comfort zone. Um, you know, people are kind of sheltered in their home life. They get into routine. And by going to college, especially going away to college, uh, you're supposed to learn new things and meet new people. Um, but what we found is that, in fact, a lot of people get to college and seek out the same kind of people that they just left when they left home to go to school. And... Our cultural competitors, if you want to call them that, the religious groups, have known this for a long time, and they have put in place extensions of home life in college campuses in the attempt to shelter uh, students from learning any kind of new information that might be counter to what they want them to believe. So, for example, Campus Crusade for Christ spends $400 million or something like that annually uh, feeding these campus programs to continue the, the Catholic viewpoint and that sort of indoctrination. And so if you grew up in a Catholic church and a Catholic family, you go away to college, you find Campus Crusade for Christ, and you haven't learned a thing. You're not exposed to anything different. These groups are particularly powerful, and of course the Baptist Student Union and all the others, all the different faiths are represented. And we started to think, you know, shoot, this is not going very well for us, in much the same way that scientists sort of set back for a while when they saw intelligent design coming on the scene because they didn't think it was real, didn't realize it was a threat, and just kind of wanted to let it roll over. Some people thought that, you know, these just college campus groups and they're just Christian groups or whatever, and that would be fine, but 
now we're realizing that we can't just let that go. We can't sit back and let this takeover happen. And it, it is starting to look like a takeover. When you pay attention to the conservative media especially, you'll find that there is a real concern on behalf of believers that their children are going to lose their beliefs when they go to college. It's not that we're actively trying Is, to isn't get that people to... Kind of <laughs> isn't that a well, legitimate that, concern? You know, I would love to see. I, <laughs> I have spent some time looking up statistics to see if that's indeed what right. happens. Um, that does happen perhaps to some extent, and we all have anecdotal evidence to that effect. But I think there's also quite a bit of anecdotal evidence where somebody who wasn't so much of a believer gets hooked in and meets some friends who happen to be going to the CCC, and off they go. And, oh, well, certainly. But I, I would love to see those numbers. I, I don't know them off the top of my head. But we wanted to make sure that we had a, a presence on campus for a couple of different reasons, not only to provide a foil to those uh, Christian and believer groups on campuses, uh, some sort of counter-argument. We just believe that it's important that everybody be exposed to different ideas so that they can choose the one that is meaningful to them, but also to know that perhaps theirs might not be the truth that they arrived with. But also because there are non-believers on college campuses and they have nowhere to go. They have no community. They have no sense of belonging to a group, and that's very important, especially at the college level. We know the dangers of isolation and feeling isolated in society. So in many ways, our on-campus groups are also really intended to be a social gathering place for non-believers, whether they be different believers from the mm -hmm. mainstream or non-believers at all. And that becomes really important as well. So we're, we're happy to provide that too. Right. You're away from home and dealing with all the pressures of college. You know, perhaps you're your average Christian student can just leave on Sundays and go to a church and get that side, sort of community. So, Exactly. I mean, all of us can relate to that feeling of you know, sitting in a room and being aware that everybody else in the room thinks we're going to hell. And we know that that, I mean, that's an isolating thing. And I think it affects us psychologically, whether we're aware of it or not. So it, it's invaluable. And people are always telling us how grateful they are that these groups exist, because otherwise they just would feel so terribly alone which is interesting because mm -hmm. generally free thinkers tend to be kind of loners. I, I think that's an accident of circumstance necessary. I don't think necessarily that we have to be by ourselves. I think we've talked ourselves into being comfortable by ourselves. I've heard you emphasize that before on some of your uh, your commentaries on point of inquiry, and I, I can't tell you how much I agree, you know, how, how to approach truth, how to understand the world through using reason instead of faith how that's only part of the story. And the other part is genuine community that you can plug into and be a part of and, and have the, the benefits that come from that. What are ways that these campus groups, or really, I guess, any sort of secular group, can promote this idea of community and can try to be more inclusive of people? I've had people approach me before. They are not religious believers. They are pretty much in line with the values of secular humanism and promoting that type of worldview. However, they're not people who are philosophically inclined. They're not people who always want to get into a deep philosophical discussion on things. And they can come to campus groups or they can come to other groups and they feel alienated because all they see is people getting into endless debates, discussing the minutia of certain philosophical topics. And they feel like they don't belong. Is that a common complaint? Well, in fact, I can relate to that entirely, but from the other end. I, I've, I have no background in philosophy whatsoever. And in fact, I usually found it frustrating and not too many steps away from just religious questions. I 
had that, ex- you know, if, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there around to hear it, does it really make a sound? Used to drive me crazy. That was the <laughs> sort of, you know, inept elementary philosophy that I was exposed to. And as a scientist, I'm thinking, of course it does. You know, it's going to move air and air movement is sound. And regardless, of, so it just it drove me crazy. So I was one of those people that would get really frustrated walking into a room where people were batting around these mm-hmm. ideas because they didn't seem very useful. To me. They weren't practical ideas. And I've always had that feeling that there were more important things to do that demanded our attention. There were problems, real problems to solve, not issues about whether a tree falling makes a sound or not. For some campus groups, they get mired in that aspect because quite often the people that have decided to form the group are philosophically minded and like to sit around and bash these ideas around for hours at a time. And that's perfectly fine, and that's great that there's a place for them to do that. Not everybody's like that. And so the best thing that we find with groups is to sort of add uh, some variety into what these meetings are all about because you're always going to have people that enjoy different aspects. So we encourage our campus groups to do outreach to the community, not necessarily about science and reason, but just participating in the life of the community, whether it's helping to build a playground for a a volunteer group or participating in in soup kitchen or handing out food or meals on wheels or whatever. Get them out there and involved. That's the aspect of humanism that we like Mm -hmm. so much. I've learned since that I had obviously a bad idea of what philosophy was, and everybody has a philosophy of life. It might not have a formal label. It might not have been talked about by philosophers in history, but we all have these sort of governing ideas that push us to do things or not do things, make this decision or that decision, and that's what we talk about when we talk about philosophy. Um, So it's very important that these students have a place where they can think about that and and get those questions asked, but for me... Thinking with your chin in your hand only goes so far. You got to do something after that. Um, to quote a song, <laughs> you know, if you if you want the rose to grow, you got to go plant it and tend the soil. It's not just enough to think about a rose. Um, so hopefully these groups, and we've seen a lot of evidence that they're diversifying their activities, whether it's a movie night or getting out in public or just social events, game night, mm-hmm. um, interspersed with the lectures and the panel discussions and the philosophical. Well, what a great way to dispel, too, the stereotypes about people who are non-religious to, you know, uh, whether it's going out in the community and helping out or something and doing good deeds or just being a real human being with somebody and enjoying their company. You know, to me, I think that'll probably, uh, I'm certainly not against uh, actively using philosophical arguments against religion. That's what the show is all about. But uh, the human component is going to do such a much better job, I think, in many people's perceptions of changing their attitudes towards who uh, who the non-believers are. I mean, we're all human beings, and that that's the basis of humanism is that we are human beings, and that's what our morality and our ethics and our philosophy is based in. So many people tend to want to deny that or deny that part of human nature. Um, which just has never made sense to me. So we just have to get out there and be human beings with our fellow human beings, and it'll work. What are some of the perceptions of these CFI groups from from other people on campus, people who are not members? Do you find generally in talking to these groups that are organizing that they are well-received on campus, or are they demonized, or are they completely off the radar altogether? It seems to me the the answer comes in at which point of their organization are you asking the question. We hear all kinds of problems with groups trying to to 
become official campus groups depending on the campus and the location um, because there's just sort of general anxiety about having an atheist group on campus. In general, though, all of the schools have been good. All the public schools have been very good at recognizing them as having any rights to exist just as any other group would. And we all know they're just extremely eccentric groups on campus, so really an atheist group is not that big a deal. Um, So that's all been fine. Some schools in more conservative areas or certainly some religious schools, those private schools that have the ability to exclude whatever they want to exclude, we don't usually have many campus groups in that environment. There are some exceptions. Um, Usually, though, once that group gets going and once they've had a chance to run some events, it seems to be a pretty positive. Uh, They still get people walking by and kind of poking, and we still hear every now and then of uh, hecklers, maybe, if you want to call them that, coming to meetings and, you know, not quite throwing tomatoes, but verbal tomatoes Mm -hmm. to try to challenge. But we actually really enjoy that because we don't want to be just talking amongst ourselves all the time. It's really great. And those are the people we would like to actually be speaking to, and they challenge us and help us refine our ideas. And that's the whole point of free inquiry is to invite all ideas to the table and then hash it out over which ones work. So in general, they're, they end up being received pretty well. And not only well-received, but they attract members because mm-hmm. there are non-believers on campus and they are tired of being alone. And when they realize that this group is there, they're very grateful. They show up. They're very happy. It's it's almost not quite a conversion experience, but it, <laughs> it, people often describe finding an atheist group in religious terms. Hopefully there's going to be people listening to this that are on a college campus that want to start a group like this whether it's a CFI on-campus group or some other type of group, where should they even start? What's the first step they can make to try to start a group like this? Well, uh, probably the first thing to do, especially if you're interested in becoming a CFI on-campus group, is go to our website. It's www.campusfreethought.org, and you'll find all kinds of information there. You'll find places where you can sign up to receive some materials. We send out... uh, organization guides and magazines and resources and brochures, and that'll help you get an idea of what CFI is all about. And if that's what you're interested in, then you go to the school and you say, hey, I'd like to form this group. Different schools have different requirements for what you need to have in place in order for them to recognize the organization. But really, that's it. So just drop us a line, sign up for those materials. We'll get that package out to you. If, if that's what you're interested in, then we just go from there. And presto, you've got a group. Yeah. It's really easy to do. Just actually step forward and do it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Lauren, for joining us on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. Who's going to make it on the shit list this week? And who's going to receive props? Well, I'll start this particular week's shit list. I'm going to be giving props to Robert Whipke. Robert Whipke is a priest in Denver, Colorado, who has been placed on administrative leave because he was arrested. And the reason why he was arrested was for jogging nude. Apparently, Robert Whipke... At 4.30 in the morning, his favorite, ho- his favorite hobby is to strip down naked and go to the local high school running track where he runs in the raw to get his morning exercise. Now, why am I giving him <laughs> praise instead of putting him on the shit list? 
because I think we have to acknowledge that Robert is working against perhaps decades of sexual repression here. <laughs> and uh, and I, I see that as liberating. He didn't attack anybody. He didn't molest anybody. He's just enjoying a good uh, a good run in the buff. And, well, I might uh, say he's showing an independent streak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I just can't bring myself to condemn public nudity. So, uh, so well, and it, props, but it's Robert not Winsky. even public nudity because he's at four thirty in the morning. Oh, that's he's true. On a, a that's true. High school. It's no one else should nudity. be around. It's, it's private nudity. In not a lot of children are shocked at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> no, and if there are, then where, where are the parents? Apparently, he was carrying something uh, clothes with him to cover himself in the event that someone would sure. Come by. So. Well, and obviously he had to get there in some kind of clothing. But yeah, so way to go, Robert Whipsky. Nice uh, more power to you. Sorry that you're being put on administrative leave, and I hope everything works out for you. I mean, if it doesn't, that would bring new meaning to the word disrobed. Then, <laughs> or defrocked. I, I believe it would be a Catholic word. Oh. He's being def- well, the headline they read: He's being defrocked for being defrocked. <laughs> a meta defrocked. Oh, oh puns. Anyway, okay. Can I do a shit list? Yeah, we'll oh, see who's on, who's on the shit list. What made my week? shit list today actually is that, uh, I don't have names of these people, but they uh, because they're anonymous. We had a instance in the United States Congress where the session was opened with a prayer. Problem with this was that for some people that the person giving the prayer was not of the Christian persuasion. So we had a, a Hindu priest, Hindu religious leader, who was uh, asked to give the invocation. Uh, and was interrupted multiple times by members of the gallery who were then for- forcibly removed by security guards. Apparently, they had a problem with him giving a a non-correct uh, invocation in the United States Congress. Clearly, this run- brings up several issues regarding church and state separation, preferential treatment for some religions and not others. You can go see the, by the way, I think it's on YouTube, the clips of him attempting oh, several times to begin his yep. prayer only to be shouted at from the gallery. Yeah, they, uh, what did they say? They said, they called uh, it an, abo- well, they, they this didn't is an abomination. shout, they prayed at him, which is, which is one of the best Even tools, uh, in, in their, their toolbox is to pray at someone. Yeah, I'm uh, sure that's going to get a lot done. It did yeah. work. He, he started undaunted multiple times into his prayer. Mm-hmm. This, this is an abomination, they said. Lord Jesus, forgive us, Father, for allowing a prayer which is an abomination in your sight. You are the one true living God. One of the protesters told the Associated Press, uh, we are Christians and pa- patriots, as they were handcuffing him and leading him away. So, to me, this is hard. Uh, you know, who who deserves the shit list here? Because uh, It's a matter I of can't, spot the abomination. Yeah, I, mean, I don't really have much sympathy for these Christian protesters, but at the same time, a great way to avoid incidences like this to begin with is just not to have prayers in the Senate at all. I don't quite understand. We we wouldn't even allow a school assembly or a graduation right. ceremony to be started with a prayer, uh, or at least we shouldn't, but yeah. we'll allow it in the Senate. And, and I looked into this to find out how long this had been going on. Was this a Bush administration thing where they opened Senate with prayer? No, it's been going on for ever. I mean, basically since day one, they've been opening with prayer. They actually have a... Senate chaplain who's paid your tax dollars at work people um, to give the prayer and he generally does it. He's uh, some Christian flavor um, but occasionally they bring in people from other denominations. I believe this is the first time 
this is definitely the first time it was a Hindu prayer. I think it's the first time that it was a non-Judeo-Christian yes, prayer. You often see in church-state arguments that the, the people that, uh, that, that think the church and state shouldn't be separated will point to the founding fathers and say, look, uh, Madison, I believe it was, agreed for funding for the, for the chaplain, mm-hmm. uh, although I think he came to regret that decision later in life. Yep. Some of the letters, I don't have them on hand. But um, the other thing, though, when you look at Founding Fathers' writings, I think it was Franklin uh, and, and Jefferson, they specifically mentioned Hindu in the context of saying we don't have a problem if somebody is a, a Hindu or a Muslim. And uh, there's, I think he spelled Hindu with two O's, though, which is right. Right. Uh, the part of the flexible the spelling. But clearly the, founding, the key Founding Fathers, uh, their response, for church and state separation thought that the religious invocations or whatnot should be spread around to right. other If there's no religious test for admittance to, to Congress, Article as, six. Yeah, then why should there be a religious test for who gets to speak? But, yeah, they, it's, it's a very strange mind mm-hmm. of the Christian fundamentalist who, uh, on the one hand, praises our freedom of religion, and on the other hand, but uh, just our freedom of religion. Yeah, sees yeah. still sees Christianity as in some way being a state. And apparently, if, if the the Christian God, uh, if he existed, would be quite a petty individual indeed to then get quite uh, to get so irate that a Hindu would be offering one lone prayer after hundreds of years of American right, history. Right, right. Well, hey, that might lead well, I to must another say, hurricane. If we have to have uh, if we have to have prayers, I'm glad that other people are getting a chance to do it, but. You know, I think the best way to do it would just get rid of them all together. Oh, prayers. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this when we have more Muslim people in the Congress and yeah. and more uh, more support for their beliefs. We're, we're going to see just how contentious this can get. I thought it was a rather shrewd move that the Muslim from, I believe it was Wisconsin or Minnesota, that yeah, he, one, he, one uh, of those. when he swore in on his Koran, he yeah. used a copy of Jefferson's Koran. Yeah. yeah. So, oh. uh, that oh, was rather yeah. a very shrewd move. Kudos to him. That was mm-hmm. great. That was great. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Till next time. Because he was arrested. And the reason why he was arrested was for jogging nude. Apparently, Robert Wipsky, at 4.30 in the morning, his favorite, ho- his favorite hobby is to strip down naked and go to the local high school running track where he runs in the raw to get his morning exercise. Now, why am I giving him <laughs> praise instead of putting him on the shit list? Uh, because I think we have to acknowledge that Robert is working against perhaps decades of sexual repression here. <laughs> and uh, and I, I see that as liberating. He didn't attack anybody. He didn't molest anybody. He's just enjoying a good uh, a good run in the buff. And, well, I might uh, say he's showing an independent streak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I just can't bring myself to condemn public nudity. So... Uh, so well, and it, props, but it's Robert not even Winsky. public nudity because he's at four thirty in the morning. Oh, that's he's true. On a, a that's true. High school. Fit. No one else should nudity. be around. It's, it's private nudity. In not the a lot of children are shocked at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> no, and if there are, then where are, where are their parents? Apparently, he was carrying something uh, clothes with him to cover himself in the event that someone would sure. come by. So. Well, and obviously, he had to get there in some kind of clothing, but. Yeah, so way to go, Robert Whipsky. Uh, more power to you. Sorry that you're being put on administrative leave, and I hope everything works out for you.
I mean, if it doesn't, that would bring new meaning to the word disrobed, then. Uh, <laughs> if it, or defrocked, I, I believe it would be a Catholic word. Oh. He's being def- when the headline they read, he's being defrocked for being defrocked. <laughs> a meta defrocked? Oh, oh puns. Anyway, okay. can I do a shit list? Yeah, let's oh, see who's on, who's on the shit list. What made my week? shit list today actually is uh, I don't have names of these people, but they uh, because they're anonymous. We had a instance in the United States Congress where the session was opened with a prayer. Problem with this was that for some people that the person giving the prayer was not of the Christian persuasion. So we had a, a Hindu priest, Hindu religious leader, who was uh, asked to give the invocation. Uh, and was interrupted multiple times by members of the gallery who were then for- forcibly removed by security guards. Apparently, they had a problem with him giving a a non-correct uh, invocation in the United States Congress. Clearly, this run- brings up several issues regarding church and state separation, preferential treatment for some religions and not others. You can go see, the. by the way, I think it's on YouTube, the clips of him attempting oh, several times to begin his yep. prayer only to be shouted at from the gallery. Yeah, they, uh, what did they say? They said, they called uh, it an, abo- well, they, they this didn't is an shout, they prayed at him, which is, which is one of the best Even tools, stranger. uh, in, in their, their toolbox is to pray at someone. Yeah, uh, I'm fiercely. sure that's going to get a lot done. It didn't yeah. work. He, he started undaunted multiple times into his prayer. Mm-hmm. This, this is an abomination. They said, Lord Jesus, forgive us father for allowing a prayer, which is an abomination in your sight. You are the one true living God. One of the protesters told the Associated Press, uh, we are Christians and pa- patriots, as they were handcuffing him and leading him away. So, to me, this is hard. Uh, you know, who who deserves the shit list here? Because uh, It's a matter I of can't, spot the abomination. Yeah, I, mm. I don't really have much sympathy for these Christian protesters, but at the same time, a great way to avoid incidences like this to begin with is just not to have prayers in the Senate at all. I don't quite understand. We we wouldn't even allow a school assembly or a graduation right. ceremony to be started with a prayer, uh, or at least we shouldn't, but yeah. we'll allow it in the Senate. And, and I looked into this to find out how long this had been going on. Was this a Bush administration thing where they open Senate with prayer? No, it's been going on for ever. I mean, basically since day one, they've been opening with prayer. They actually have a... Senate chaplain who's paid your tax dollars at work, people, um, to give the prayer. And he generally does it. He's uh, some Christian flavor. Um, But occasionally they bring in people from other denominations. I believe this is the first time, this is definitely the first time it was a Hindu prayer. I think it's the first time that it was a non-Judeo-Christian prayer. You often see in church-state arguments that the the people that, uh, that, that think the church and state shouldn't be separated will point to the founding fathers and say, look, uh, Madison, I believe it was, agreed for funding for the for the chaplain. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think he came to regret that decision later in life. Yep. Some of the letters I don't have them on hand, but um, the other thing, though, when you look at founding fathers' writings, I think it was Franklin uh, and, and Jefferson. They specifically mentioned Hindu in the context of saying we don't have a problem if somebody is a, a Hindu or a Muslim. And uh, there's, I think he spelled Hindu with two O's though, which is right. Right. Uh, the part of the flexible the spelling. But clearly, the founding, the key founding fathers, uh, their response for church and state separation thought that the religious invocations or whatnot should be spread around to right. other If there's no religious test for admittance to to Congress. Article as, six. Yeah. Then why should there be a religious test for who gets to speak? But yeah, they 
it's it's a very strange mind mm-hmm. of the Christian fundamentalist who, uh, on the one hand, praises our freedom of religion, and on the other hand, uh, but just our freedom of religion yeah, sees yeah. still sees Christianity as in some way being a state. And apparently, religion. if there, the Christian God, uh, if he existed, would be quite a petty individual indeed to then get quite uh, to get so irate that a Hindu would be offering one lone prayer after hundreds of years of right, history. Right, right, uh, right. Well, hey, that might well, lead I to another hurricane. Well, I must say, if we, have to have, uh, if we have to have prayers, I'm glad that other people are getting a chance to do it. But, you know, I think the best way to do it would just get rid of them altogether. Oh, prayers. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this when we have more Muslim people in the Congress and yep. and more uh, more support for their beliefs. We're, we're going to see just how contentious this can get. I thought it was a rather shrewd move that the Muslim from I believe it was Wisconsin or Minnesota. Yeah, he, one, he, one uh, of those. When he swore in on his Quran, he yeah. used a copy of Jefferson's Quran. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, uh, that oh, was rather yeah. very shrewd move. Kudos to him. That was great. That was great. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Till next time. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, go to www.doubtreligion.blogspot.com. Apple Tree is produced by Grand Rapids' very own Love Fossil and is used with permission. <laughs>